from KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Schuck. June 26, 2015, was an historic day. The Supreme Court removed all bans on same-gender marriage. That means my daughter and her wife are legally married in all 50 states, including the state in which they live, Tennessee. It's a huge victory for equality. The Presbyterian Church USA voted for marriage equality in March 2015, and in June, the nation followed. Obviously, change is in the air. Now the real work begins. The law has changed, but there are other laws that need changing, such as discrimination against LGBT people in regards to employment, among many others. More hearts and minds need to change. Violence against LGBT people, especially LGBT people of color, is distressingly high. It's time for our country and our places of worship to fully accept, embrace, and empower sexual, gender, and ethnic diversity, in short, to become queer. To discuss what that means, my guest is Nicole Garcia. Nicole describes herself as a transgender Latina of faith. She has a counseling practice and is seeking ordination to the ministry in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Upon her ordination, she will be the first transgender person of color to be ordained in the ELCA. She talks with me about her journey from male to female, in which is also a journey of spirit and a journey of self-worth. Nicole is changing hearts and minds. Via Skype from Longmont, Colorado, welcome, Nicole, to Religion for Life. Thank you, John. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Well, I would love to talk with you about your journey and all of the, the things that you are, are doing. You describe yourself as a transgender Latina of faith, and th- three things at least we can talk about with that. But I was wondering, could, could you tell me a little bit about, uh, about your story? Um, yes. Well, I was born and raised in Boulder, Colorado. And I was the oldest son um, in, in my family. And my, my parents, um, and especially my grandparents, were very devout Roman Catholics. So I was raised um, in, in the Catholic Church. I, I was baptized. I'd had First Communion, um, was confirmed. And then by the time I got to high school, I was, I was devout. I, was, I sang in a couple different church choirs. Um, so it was nothing for me to go to church two or three times in a weekend. And if, and if there were a funeral or a wedding, I could be in church four or five times in a week. So liturgy, the mass was very, very important to my upbringing. And one, one other thing I do have to mention is the fact that my birthday is on December 12th. And those in the Latino world especially know that December 12th is a feast day of the Virgin of Guadalupe. Uh, and so I've always considered myself a Guadalupana, which means I am devoted heart and soul to the Virgin of Guadalupe. Um, but it's not in a way that um, as a Lutheran now, I look on it differently than um, how I looked on it as a Roman Catholic. Um, I pray the rosary uh, frequently with a candle of uh, a devotional candle to the Virgin um, burning to try and emulate how Mary was devoted to her son, Christ, to her son, Jesus. Um, And that devotion is something that I've carried on with me as a Lutheran. 
And there is a legend uh, that's associated, right, with the Virgin of Guadalupe. Correct, correct. Um, you have to keep in mind that, you know, in 1492, Columbus arrived in the New World. By 1519, Hernán Cortés had uh, devastated and destroyed the Aztec Empire. And along with the conquistadores, um, priests were brought uh, across the ocean to convert uh, the heathen people, so-called heathen peoples, to the Catholic religion. So in 1531, uh, a man named Juan Diego, who was a Catholic convert, had gone down um, from his little his home to go to Mexico City to, to hear Mass. And he was passing a hill uh, called Tepeyac when he saw uh, an image of, of the Virgin Mary appear to him. And she told him to go into um, Mexico City, go to the bishop, and ask the bishop to build a cathedral in her honor so she, so the people could come to her and be comforted in their sorrow and grief. Well, to make a long story rather short, after three times of going to the bishop and, and being told no, the third time uh, the lady told Juan Diego to climb the hill of Tepeyac and pick the flowers that he saw there. And keeping in mind this was December, it was cold, there was ice on the ground, uh, there were there should not have been any flowers there. But when he got to the top of the hill, he found flowers. In, in the Nikan Mopuhua, the original version, it's just as flowers, but tradition has said they were Castilian roses, which were the favorite of the bishop. And so Juan Diego gathered the roses, put them into his cloth around that he wore around his neck, his tilma, took them to the lady. She arranged them and told him, this is the sign that you could give to the bishop. So Juan Diego went to the bishop, unfurled the tilma, and the bishop and, and the um, roses fell to the bishop's feet, but he didn't see the, the, the roses because the image of Guadalupe appeared on that fabric. And that, that uh, original tilma can still be seen because it's hanging in the, in the cathedral of Guadalupe in Mexico City. I know in an article that uh, you wrote on on faith, uh, on, for the column on faith, finding faith in Jesus as a transgender Christian, and you spoke about liberation theology, Gustavo Gutierrez, mm -hmm. and uh, this story of Juan Diego uh, is an important part of your own liberation story, isn't it? Yes, yes it is, because Juan Diego to me represents the people who came to find Jesus through uh, their own suffering, and they... There's some argument that this was a, a contrivance, a, a story um, created by the church in order to enslave and oppress the people. But to me, you know, the tilma is still there. Our, our lady is there to give us comfort in our sorrow and our grief to those who have a difficult time navigating through the complexities of life. And we're not as oppressed as, as the native peoples of Mexico were in the mid-1500s, but as a transgender Latina, I found that her comfort and her words helped me, especially when I am working as a therapist and working with people in my office of how they can express who they are in a world which does not accept them. Uh, tell me about uh, your counseling practice. Uh, you started that, I believe, uh, in the summer of 2014. Correct. Correct. Um, I had actually spent many years working as um, a parole officer. Um, I had gotten married in, two, in 2000, uh, 
2002. And because uh, I thought being married would cure me of these feelings that I had inside. And there were rumors in the family that I had become that I was gay because during the 80s in my wild during my wild period, um, I, I would wake up next to people of both genders and uh, I would occasionally have girlfriends and boyfriends. And so I think the family saw saw me with men periodically. So some people thought I was gay. So after I got married to refute those claims, I thought, what's the best way to refute that? But go into law enforcement. Um, it, it was it was the logic I had at the time mm -hmm. that didn't quite work. And so I ended up working in a state prison, then going on and working in a as a parole officer. And after my transition and, and living many years as Nicole, I realized that the job wasn't exactly what I wanted to do any longer. I had nothing to prove to anyone except to myself of, of the goodness of my heart. Um, but I couldn't, the, the framework of parole just no longer fit who I was. So I really embraced the part of the job that I really liked, and that was working with people, sitting with people in my office, um, trying to help them navigate uh, the, the, the difficulties of coming out and living on parole. And that's what I felt I was best in. So in 2009, I started on a master's degree in counseling. And uh, I worked full time as a parole officer, worked part time as a, um, a as a graduate student and eventually got my master's degree in counseling from University of Colorado, Denver in, on May in May of 2014. And I knew in my heart that what I really wanted to do is give back to the community that um, has allowed me to blossom and bloom into the incredibly strong and confident person I am today. So I opened an office in Longmont, Colorado, and I, um, I would say 90% of my clients are individuals who are in some sort of transition or coming to terms with who they are as a gendered being. Um, I'm happy to say I have a lot of clients who are able to pay my full rate um, but I also have several clients who I, I see on a pro bono basis. So I see them for free because they're referred to me by the Gender Identity Center. Um, and I also have some clients that I see at a reduced rate because of their their employment circumstances. If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Nicole Garcia, a transgender Latina of faith. Uh, she has a counseling practice, as we just talked about, in Colorado, um, and also uh, seeking ordination in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Uh, tell me a little bit about that process. How did you decide to uh, take that call? Um, it was a long process, and, and we call it a discernment process. How do we discern how God is working in our lives? Uh, when I came out and was, um, when I came out early in my transition, um, I also, I, I found, I made a friend who was also a police officer, and um, I had long conversations with this individual, and she told me about this Lutheran church that she had been going to that was open and welcoming. Well, as a, a Roman Catholic, I, my first thought was, well, how could I go to a church with a heretic uh, excommunic excommunicated priest? Mm. But once I got past my own ideas and thoughts about Lutheranism and 
had to open my heart to maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to me. I walked into that church and it was St. Paul Lutheran Church in downtown Denver. And I was, as I said before, I was early in my transition. I felt like, um, you know, I did my best to apply my makeup and, and wear a nice outfit, but I kind of felt like a kid who had gotten into their mother's makeup and people would just turn and point at me and say, look at that man in the dress. Well, that's not what happened. The people at St. Paul embraced me. Um, they took me under their wing and they gave me a place that I could celebrate once again my faith in Jesus Christ. Um, within about uh, two months, I had begun their catechumen process, basically doing adult religion, uh, adult education about the Lutheran Church. And I discovered for me um, Lutheranism is really looking at Christ through the lens of um, being saved by the saved by the gift that we have been given by Christ, the gift of grace that lift that forgiveness and unconditional love that God has for us, and we don't have to do anything to receive that gift. Um, we just have to accept that gift, and it was an incredible revelation. So um, by October 2003, I became a Lutheran. I became a part of St. Paul. So um, you know you're a part of a church when you're asked to join a committee. Uh -huh. And I was asked to join the Reconciling in Christ Committee. Um, the Reconciling in Christ program was developed by a group called Lutherans Concern North America. And this program is designed so that uh, we provide materials and sometimes people to come in and speak about what does it mean to be open and welcoming to people of all sexual orientations and gender identities. And by making that public proclamation, we also want to make sure that people are ready um, to greet and really show what it's like to be open and welcoming. Um, because what if a church has never had or never openly had an openly gay or lesbian person in their church. Um, what does that welcome mean? How do you approach a, a gay couple that has not been in that church before? How do you approach a transgender person? How do you embrace them and bring them into the full life and participation in your church? So um, as part of this RIC committee, the Reconciling in Christ committee, um, we would go with groups of people you know, we would usually have a, a, a gay man, a lesbian, a transgender person, uh, maybe a bisexual person, and somebody who was uh, cisgendered or, or a straight person to talk about what it's like to live in community and what it's like to live in an open and welcoming congregation. Well, I was noticed because people seem to think that I uh, have a very good speaking voice, and I'm very articulate, I'm very passionate. So uh, I was noticed by the main um, headquarters of Lutherans Concerned. And in 2008, I was asked to join the board as the transgender representative. And part of that was uh, I was given the opportunity to do a lot of traveling and speaking on behalf of Lutherans Concerned. And I was giving a lot of training on how to how to reach people, how to talk talk to people, um, how to be passionate about the work that I'm doing. And it was right in the middle of my uh, counseling uh, 
degree that I started getting, I started having these thoughts that I wanted to do more with reconciling works or do more with um, inside the church. One day on Thursday morning um, during a seven o'clock service, my office at that time was still working parole and my office was in downtown Denver, just down the block from St. Paul Lutheran, my, my church. And Pastor Kevin would have uh, would say, uh, would have a, a service at seven o'clock on Thursday mornings. So I was going to church on Thursday morning, then I would zip down and go into the office. And as I'm sitting there in the middle of service, Kevin raised the host and said the words of institution, take this, um, this bread is my body given for you, do this for remembrance of me. And as he was lifting the host in the air, I knew right at that moment, that's where I wanted to be. That's where I had to be. I knew I wanted to be a pastor. And I asked Kevin after, after the service, um, well, I, I approached Kevin and I said, I, I really know I, what I need to do. I want to be ordained. I want to be a pastor, but I don't know how I can do it. I don't want to uproot my life and and move. And I, I'm caretaker for my eight-year-old mother. Uh, I'm still finishing a degree uh, in counseling. Um, after that, I would like to open up a counseling practice. And he just told me Luther Seminary, look at their distance learning program. So by the end of the day, I had explored and looked at Luther Seminary and their distance learning program, which would allow me to remain at home for the majority of the year, take classes online, and then go to St. Paul, Minnesota in January and June for two-week intensive classes. And it answered all my prayers. And so you are seeking ordination in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, and you will be the first transgender person of color in that denomination. Is that correct? That's my, that's what I believe. I, I know of several other transgender individuals who are going through seminary and um, are, have been ordained. And I believe I'm the only one, only Latina and well, the only person of color who is transgender, who is seeking um, ordination. You know, your story, you are so open and vulnerable about so many things, um, uh, your transition, your substance abuse, um, and, and the church ha has been a help with that. Uh, counseling has been a help with that. Um, what about a family? I mean, I, I can imagine that it would be difficult to come up with the courage to be able to make the, the decisions that you've made. Um, how has that happened, and, and what, would, what advice would you give to people who might be hearing this program today, who might be in a similar situation? I remember the, when I really discovered and, and uh, revealed to myself that I was transgender and I needed to, to transition. It was at a conference in 2003, and I came home, and I was all excited, and I called one of my cousins, uh, one of my cousins that I've, you know, of course, known my whole life and the only person I'd really confided in that I was on this journey. And I was all excited. I'm like, Kelly, 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 I finally know what's going on with me. I'm a, I'm a transgender woman. I need, a, I need to 
transition. I'm going to live as a woman. I'm going to live as Nicole. And she said, well, that sounds really great. What about your mother? Mm. And that, that was, that was at that point over the next few weeks, I had to really carefully consider what I was willing to lose. Um, and what I was willing to do in order to transition. And, you know, being the oldest son in a Roman Catholic, Hispanic, Latino family, um, I had a place of honor uh, in, in the family. I was, ex I felt like there were certain expectations of me. And I was also working as a parole officer, working in law enforcement, um, especially back in 2003, wasn't known for being open and welcoming to the to the gay and lesbian community, much less transgender. Mm -hmm. I was fully expecting to lose my job and to be ostracized from my family. But I knew in my heart I couldn't continue living um, as a male. And so I made that decision. And yes, it was difficult for my family to accept. Um, there was there were several weeks after I told my mother where she didn't want to talk to me. And keep in mind that I talked to my mother almost every day of my life. And she didn't want to talk to me. It was devastating. Mm. But slowly but surely she came around. And then in 2000, um, 2003, dad's cancer came back. And so he was going through chemotherapy and in early 2005, um, in, in January, we came to the conclusion that mom could no longer take care of him. Uh, we've been trying as much as possible. My sisters and I have been trying to help as much as possible. We had cousins, but came to the conclusion that mom could not be at the house by herself anymore uh, with dad. And so I ended up moving into the house. Mom ended up um, coming down with a, a significant illness and ended up in the hospital for two weeks. So my sisters kind of took care of mom while she was in the hospital. I stayed at home and took care of dad. And I think it was during that period of time that my family really saw who I was, the caring and nurturing person I had become and that I cared for the house and kept the house just like my mother would. And when my father was dying, he was calling me his daughter. He was calling me he. Wow. And so for dad to make that proclamation to the whole family that I was his daughter, no one could challenge him. And, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, sitting up because he was kind of in his own world, heavily medicated to, to deal with the pain. He was still, I asked him, it's like, why did you start calling me Hita? And he says, because I've never seen you happy until now. He oh. says, you have always been depressed. You've been moody. You've been angry. Half the time I've seen you drinking. He said, you're happy now. I can see it in your heart and I can see it in your eyes. So after that, I thank my dad for uh, paving the way for me. If you're just joining us, Nicole Garcia is my guest on Religion for Life, and I just have uh, a, a, about a minute or so left, but you wrote in, uh, you also go on, on and speak at, at different places, and, and one of the um, 
uh, spe- uh, speeches that you give is called A Queer Church Beyond Inclusion. Uh, can you take a minute or two and talk about uh, what, you, what you would hope for uh, the church to be in regards to transgender, lesbian, gay, bisexual persons, um, and, and how you might impact that as a minister? We like to see the world through through a particular lens, and the lens that is um, being put forth and has been put forth for a long time is this concept of a binary gender identity, um, that they're only male and female. But if you look through scripture, you'll find that there are a lot of characters that do not strictly fit that binary. Deborah was a warrior. Um, yes, um, there were very feminine women, they're very um, male men, but they're also, you know, effeminate men. Look at Joseph and his coat of many colors. And my friend mm. Peterson Toscano, um, uh, in, in one of his plays, um, takes the vein that that coat of many colors, if you look at it carefully and you go through the Hebrew, it could be interpreted as being a princess dress. Mm. You know, there are just so many characters in the Bible that do not conform to the male and female roles. And if we really believe, I really believe in an almighty, powerful, infinite God, and that my God does not have a gender. Um, My God surpasses and goes past any gender. So if we are truly made in the image of God, then God appears both as male and female, as transgender, as genderqueer, as gender fluid, as bi-gendered, the ex- wide expanse and spectrum of gender, not just two. We cannot limit God um, just to try and understand God in our simple human ways. So what what I what I hear uh, and what I see in your witness, in your ministry, in your counseling is adding to the church in a sense of, of breaking its own cultural biases towards binary understanding of gender and opening it up, opening the church itself up uh, to really be in a, in a broader image of who God is. Yes, I think you said it quite nicely. Um, we just want to limit God. Mm-hmm. And we just cannot do that. God is beyond gender. God is beyond race and ethnicity. Um, God encompasses all races and, and colors and, and genders and sexes and is beyond anything we can conceive of. And what I hear so much of the time is that there's not enough God to go around. If God loves me, could God also love you? Um, or if God loves you too much, there won't be enough God left for me. There's plenty There's plenty of love and forgiveness to go around for everyone. Plenty of God to go around. Nicole Garcia, my guest on Religion for Life. Nicole, uh, tell us your website. Um, www.nicolegarciacounseling.com All right. Thank you so much for your important work, for being vulnerable, for telling your story, inspiring others, and for spending time with me today on Religion for Life. Oh, thank you, John, for this tremendous opportunity. It's a pleasure being with you today. You've been listening to Religion for Life. Find links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. That's religionforlife.com.
Follow Religion for Life on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and download podcasts from iTunes. Religion for Life is heard on KZUM, Lincoln, Nebraska, WEHC, Emory, Virginia, and WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee. Religion for Life is produced and distributed with assistance by WETS and KBOO Portland. Be well.